Scott Bass, realwatersports.com is our partner today. Yeah, look, Trip and uh, all the good crew over there at Real Water Sports, um, they've been supporting our show for a long time, and we love what they do. They provide an incredible service, which is uh, basically drop shipping all your hard goods needs, all your soft goods needs, all your surf needs to anywhere in the world. So um, if you're in need, realwatersports.com is the place to go. Yeah. And they also, their entire staff is like former professionals at in a given sport or discipline from kite surfing to actual surfing. So they're experts. So you may not know exactly what you need, but they will be able to guide you into it and they house everything. They've got an incredible inventory. So check them out on realwatersports.com. And then Surf NVS is one of the fin brands that they carry. And it is what Scott Bass and I also ride, NVS fins. Yeah, I was riding them yesterday in some fun surf. Um, the NVS twins are set up that Stu Kenson designed with those guys. Uh, Naked Vikings fins, I'm a huge fan. I have, uh, I'm lucky enough to have a, a large allotment of fins to choose from. And, <clears throat> excuse me, it's... Uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to change your fins in and out of the boards. You basically get a new board. Every time you change your fins, you get a whole new ride. And yeah. uh, I'm, I know I've been spouting about this for a long time, but I beg you, please try try some different fins and you will be so psyched. Yeah. And surfnvs.com is where you do it. Uh, they make fins for shapers who need 15 sets of fins a year or up to 200 sets a month. So they can kind of do anything for anybody, no matter how small or large you are. In the last six weeks, they've released new collaborations with Roger Hines, Maurice Cole, Sean Madison, Ryan Lovelace, Bob Mitzfin, totaling 18 new templates of fins. So lots going on on surfnvs.com. See some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. Uh, when it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got. Yeah, guy. Yeah, guy. Yeah, it's a friggin' Merry Christmas, yeah, guy type of morning here. It's Spit. It's the Spit Podcast. David Lee Scales and Scott Bass here with you talking all things surf, all things goings on in the world of surf. And good morning, David. Good morning, Scott. I'm excited. I'm in the Christmas spirit, shifting into uh, relaxation mode, leisure mode. Yeah, well... You might be the hardest working guy in surf. I mean, you're a busy man, so you deserve a little bit of a break. Thank you very much. I did gang tape a bunch of podcasts uh, for Surf Splendor in the last couple of weeks so that I can just hit the publish button the next two weeks. Oh, good. What do we have in what? Let's tease the audience here. What's what's on, on in store for us? I would love to. We've got um, Kai Neville is being published today. So Kai Neville, obviously important filmmaker. Um, and then... Eden Saul from Dead oh, Kooks is next that's cool. week. That's pretty cool. That's do you know, interesting. Do you know Eden at all? I do know Eden. Yeah. I've met Eden a few times and he's been at the boardroom. He's purchased a booth. He's been at the boardroom show a couple of times and uh, ran into Eden quite a few times over at Moonlight Glassing. I think he was doing some boards there. And um, yeah. And I'm stoked on the whole Dead Kooks vibe, man. He's incredible. And um, his 
board was one of, or he he shaped one of the boards in the electric acid surfboard test that just wrapped up this past week too. So I got some insights from him on that experience working with them. Uh, he kind of got panned by Sean Manners in the whole experience. Yes. Dude, so, everybody got panned by Sean Manners. That's a good point. Yeah, I really did. Oh man. Well, dude, what the heck is going on in New Jersey this week, Scott? Holy shit, the bomb cyclone bomb thing dropped and the waves were um first of all let me just say those waves okay those waves are huge they're powerful they're cold they're mean it's like you know deep long period swell low tide beach break frigid it's it's very very difficult to surf those waves like i don't think like your average guy that's on the north shore right now that's like a good surfer wouldn't want anything to do with that there, those New Jersey guys are a whole different breed of hardcore. Like it's, it's crazy. And and frankly, some of the outer banks guys too, cause it, it, it gets cold down there as well. But I mean, when you're wearing gloves and booties and hoods and five mil suits and the waves are just thick, mean barreling, you know, eight to 12 foot, I would say even bigger. There was, I saw some 15 foot faces easy yeah. and late low tide drops on these. It's just you have to be a young person to do this. You know what I mean? You have to be a committed, hardcore, you know, like where's Dean Randazzo? I was like, okay, we're going to see some Dean Randazzo. <laughs> Dean's smart. He's like, dude, I'm in Puerto Rico. I surf where the water's warm. I know it. I You can't overstate all of what you just stated. It's gnarly. And the wind too. There's tons of wind blowing up the face. So I can't imagine tons of duck diving first of all to even get into position and then to get into a wave and your body to be functional at that point with all of that rubber in the cold is crazy and to be perfectly honest i didn't see a bunch of guys making a bunch of waves i saw a lot of people uh getting pitched and free falling and stuff and guys did there were a few good rides but it wasn't they were few and far between yeah you're packing a lot of closeouts you're working really hard and um you know, it's a labor of love. I've, you know, when I was much younger, I, I get it. You know, like I was sort of in into that, I, you know, like that early morning cold offshore, go find the bombs at Baja Malibu thing. Uh, you know, this was a long time ago, way before jet skis or toes or whatever. But um, yeah, it's just what those guys experienced a couple of days ago is uh, next level. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, What transpired it looks like and people are saying it might be some of the biggest perfect surf that we've ever seen in new jersey what transpired to make that happen well frankly i i can't speak expertly to how it all came about um i do know that the national weather service and sort of the national media was focused on this this uh, bomb cyclone is what they're calling it that sort of you know i think what you have is you have a deep low pressure and a deep high pressure sort of rubbing together like a cheese on a grater and it just um it sets up a ton of fetch and a ton of of swell and man did it pour through into that area well i'm always focused obviously or interested in uh the surf but he turned on the news yesterday and it has detrimental effects on land as for as perfect as the surf was there was tons of flooding and um havoc you know people actually dying from trees falling down and stuff like that so pretty uh pretty scary stuff on land yeah oh well, no doubt and um it 
you know, looking at ways like that makes the surf here seem kind of idyllic as far as, <laughs> you know, the 61 degree air temperature and the 62 degree water temperature. By the way, the water's warm. Like on the buoys, there's a 63 degree reading on the Torrey Pines buoy. Really? That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, a couple of things in surf news this week. We've got a big rumor dropped from Stab Magazine about Carissa Moore that you and I have kind of predicted for a while now. We do have a Tahiti update. We do have Stab in the Dark finale. Uh, where would you like to begin, Scott? I've got a listener line call about the analogies between climbing that we've discussed and the surf world. Ooh. Um, well, I think we should start with the latest. I think the lead is what's happening in the Olympics and the latest update with the Olympics. Um, so I received an official document um, from the Paris Organizing Committee, Paris 2024 Organizing Committee, um, that is in regards to the ongoing debate that we have been discussing here and the fallout on social media. And essentially what they said was the French Polynesian government, uh, Paris 2024, and the Hot Commiserat have studied all the possible scenarios for improving the project over the last few months and have reached a consensus on an option combining the promise of safety, durability, and limited environmental impact for the house hosting of surfing events at Chopu. Ultimately, what this document says is that they're proceeding with the build to build the tower. Um, what we hadn't stated in the past was that their concern is that the currently existing wooden tower just simply does not meet their regulatory standards. Um, and the locals' response to that was, it's worked for 20 years and it will continue to. And so you don't really need to build a new tower. What they're ultimately saying is the standards that you guys have creates, it's not up to our standards. And from a regulation standpoint, this creates a liability for us. If something did happen, we would be held liable. We cannot take that risk. We have to find a solution. So obviously, um, the initial kind of build was what they were rallying against, but now this new document is saying they found a in-between solution, essentially. A consensus has been agreed upon between everybody, and they're going to find a more amiable solution that will have less environmental impact. Yeah, so a couple of things. It looks like they're going to build on the existing, in the same exact existing footprint. Um, they're going to size down. Um, what they had initially planned on, it'll be smaller than the, what they had initially planned on. And, um, and it's going to be done with more oversight. Everyone's, all the players are going to, all the people that have ownership are going to be able to see it. There's going to be transparency as far as the build and every step of the way. If you are a stakeholder, you will be allowed to engage, um, and really, I think what this comes down to is a couple of things. One is, <clears throat> I think on some level, the entire government, everyone involved was like, we don't want to not have the Olympics in Tahiti. And I think they kind of got in front of some of the people that were on the fence or even the ones that were like, no way, we can't do this. We can't build this tower. And they said, hey, man look at the big picture. Like there's a ton of economy happening. There's, I don't know exactly what they said, but it, it feels like they all kind of went, 
do you really not want to have the Olympics in Tahiti? Cause this will never happen again. And I think they all kind of like looked at each other and went, well, you know, I don't, and again, this is all here. This is just me making this up, but I'm, I'm assuming that that's how they got everyone together, that they were yeah. like, look, we can all kind of agree to at least discuss this. And in that process, they all kind of hugged it out and figured it out. Uh, I will say, though, that there was one group that's certainly not, that's still on the outs. And that is this Chiopu Association, Vai Ara O Chiopu Association, which um, basically hasn't signed off on this, but has said that we're not going to go beyond what is legally allowed of us. In other words, code for we're not going to create some big, you know, brouhaha. Um, and we have been given the opportunity to monitor the work and we'll see, you know, in the knowledge that the municipality of this area and other associations are in favor of this agreement, we're going to just kind of agree not to say anything. Like we're not voting yes, we're not voting no, we're just kind yeah. of not involved. Now, a lot of the other stakeholders, David, and you should probably mention who they are, because I think they're important too. You know, it's important to understand that there's there's more than just this local Chiaopu uh, association. Well, it was a four-hour meeting on December 10th, and the people at the meeting were the public consultation. I'm sorry, the people at the meeting were the president of French Polynesia, Motai Brotherson, um, the Polynesian Minister for Youth and Sport, Environmental and Residents Association from the West, uh, Taya... Tayapu, not this, not Chopu, but Tayapu Municipal Council, and the Tahiti Surfing Federation, and the West Tayarapu uh, Tourism Committee, as well as architects and technical and environmental experts from the Institut Genocet des Sports de Polynesia Francaise. Um, so I sense that all of the people you mentioned were already on board. <laughs> they were like. But the one little Chopu town association was with Matai Drolet, and those guys were like, this is lame. And they raised enough of a stink for everyone to kind of go, well, let's let them, let's all come together and hug it out and figure it out. And they will, I spoke with Barton Lynch yesterday. And um, what I found interesting is that they're kind of hanging this, this bit of leverage over them, which is if we don't do this, there will never be another WSL event or any event ever at this location, or at least with a judging tower. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, hmm, are they like, it feels like almost a little blackmailish. Like if you don't agree with us doing this for the Olympics, it's out. We're never doing Chopu events again. We're not allowing it because as you mentioned, they're kind of saying liability, you know, it's an yeah. insurance issue. And it probably is by the way, I'm not saying it isn't, but it also is kind of a convenient way to go. You sure you don't want to ever have another event here? Because yeah, that's well, where we're going. That's that's why you need somebody appointed leader at the WSL, a visionary leader at the WSL who can implement creative solutions to this. Because my response to that would be like, turns out we don't need a judging tower. We can run all of the judging remotely. So you lose your ace card, you know? And it, I also think that the ace card might not have too much weight behind it. I, in other words, I agree. they could not have the Chopu event for the Olympics and Next August, they're just having the Chopu event because the, the local Chopu people are like, yeah, just go set up on the old tower. No big deal. And exactly. they run it and nobody even raises a stink. Yeah. Well, the new, officially, the new Judges Tower project involves A, a reduction to the surface area of the new tower 
by about 50 meters, um, lightening the tower. So now it's going to be nine tons compared to the 14 tons, which was originally planned. Reduction of the number of people and equipment on the tower, reduction of the depth of drilling, adoption of temporary solutions for the supply of fiber and electrics with the technical sheath dismantled after the games, elimination of drinking water and wastewater connections. Uh, <laughs> Those are big deals. Those last two things are big deals, both the electrical cabling and the, the toilets. Totally. That, that was going to cause a big problem as far as the environment. Totally. Um, and then reinforced site monitoring measures, which you already discussed. So, yeah. So these people all got together and said, look, we'll give a little bit if you'll give a little bit. And they all kind of gave a little bit. And again, um, it does seem like the local associations kind of like everyone kind of went, dude, you know, like you're the last cog in the wheel here. Are you going to get on board? We're going to have the Olympics here. What about Vahini Fiero? What about Kalu Voss? These people, we could make this, you know, this could be a really proud moment. An Olympic gold medal is a big friggin' deal, man. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I got to say, I, you know, as an end user fan of sport and of surfing and of the Olympics, I want them to have the Olympics at Chopra. I just do. And I'm sure you do too. And so there's this, you know, there's this sort of gray area where it's like, man, the locals are kind of concerned and who are we to tell the locals you know what they should or shouldn't do based on our own sort of selfish desire to have a fun event at Chopra yeah I, I guess the majority of my um, concerns from the get-go were more about them using this as a Trojan horse to develop the area at large and so um, I do have you know a moderate amount of concern about the environmental impact to the local reef but I suppose that could be assuaged by saying we there is going to be some impact, but it will be minimal. And the return on the investment will mean that we get all these great events in the future and we are able to continue to have contests there in a, you know, uh for a long time to come or something like that. There's some kind of negotiation there that I would feel like would be worth a certain amount of damage to the reef and even the ecosystem if the payout was great enough, but if it's all a facade and it is a Trojan horse to develop the region at large, that's where I have the biggest problem with. And nothing about this negotiated version of the tower quells that concern. Oh, you're, you, you're, you're kind of taking a wait and see. Maybe this, maybe this thing goes away and before you know it, they're building four lane roads. I mean, again, I haven't seen the plans beyond yeah. plans for this tower. You know what I mean? And that that was also the concern of Matahi in his videos was, why has there been so much secrecy about all of these plans? And um, so that's still a concern for me. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to take a wait and see. But from my vantage now, it seems as if where all systems go for the Chopu event, uh, the Olympics, uh, having an event at Chopu and um that is the they, official yeah yeah official they gave headline. a timeline of the work I mean there's a timeline here of you know how the work's going to proceed and so everyone can watch it all unfold you know I'm sure there will be more to be revealed and I'm sure that Matahe and that local uh Chopu uh and I apologize I know I'm pronouncing it wrong that local community is going to be following it we're going to see what's going on with it and um hopefully it's smooth hopefully things are smooth and um yeah well somebody who may 
in fact, be competing at Chopu that year is one Alex Carissa, Carissa oh. Moore. Dude, check this out. So I was talking to Barton yesterday for the podcast. By the way, the Boardroom Podcast will be, I don't know, we'll get it live here pretty shortly in a day or two. And he told me that Sean Thompson and a bunch of the other former world champion surfers drafted a letter and had a, had everyone sign it. Rabbit, Barton, Damien Harbin, Sean, Mark Richards. I'm not sure who else, but a bunch of former world champions draft a letter saying basically Kelly Slater needs to be in the Olympics and sent it to, I don't know, Fernando or somebody at the ISA, which I, I thought that was, first of all, it was new information for me to digest. I was like, wow, that's pretty ballsy. And that's pretty cool. I'm kind of stoked on that because I want Kelly Slater in the yeah. Olympic games, quite frankly. And um, anyway, that's sort of, I don't know if that's breaking news, but I found that to be pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. Um can they just bend the rules? Can they just create a new rule to make well, that happen? Well, you know, who was, I was so I when I was there talking no, about there, there are no official rules. I mean, this is all kind that's of the truth territory. You know, Matt George talked about it in, in that. I don't know if you listened, but he was basically saying, "Look, Michael Jordan was in the Olympics for basketball. You know, um, friggin' Ivan or uh, Djokovic for tennis. You know, like Rory McIlroy for like." the best of the best professional athletes in each of their sport, they're not like qualified in. They're just like, this is the guy we want representing us. You know, you're, you're totally. telling me you're not going to let Michael Jordan be in the, in the Olympic games. Yeah. I, I really, um, I have no qualms about it at all. I don't either. Let's do this. Let's Why wouldn't a fun you? event. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's just have a fun event. Um, so the Carissa Moore rumor that I alluded to, was reported on Stab Magazine, I believe Holden Trinka maybe is the writer of this article, but basically he said, quote, in the past weeks we've spent on the North Shore, our ears have been filled with whispers that Carissa Moore will not be surfing in the CT next year. The word is that she may compete at Pipeline and Sunset, since she's already in Hawaii, but will not continue on from there. These rumors have been confirmed by multiple close sources and have left us with quite a few questions. At the last two WSL finals, uh, the number one ranked five-time world champion has relinquished two world titles to lower seated surfers. These, this turn of events has likely dimmed her hopes of becoming the quote, greatest female surfer in history based on world title wins, a distinction she probably would have claimed before the format underwent changes. She would be six to seven with Steph right now if it weren't for the WSL finals format, instead, she has just five to Stephanie's eight, end quote. So, of course, this is all in relation to the fact that the WSL shifted the event format and the season format in the last couple of years, holding a single day final and um, surf a single day final surf off for the world championship. Carissa Moore went into that finals day with a significant lead and was the number one ranked surfer almost throughout the entire season for both those years, and then basically lost her world title on that single day event at lowers two years in a row. So what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are, and this is the next paragraph in that article, which I think is important is what is more important to your legacy, Olympic gold medals and five world titles or zero gold medals and eight world titles. And Quite frankly, that is an easy answer, and it is Olympic gold medals 
are way more powerful than world titles. And I'll tell you why, because when the entire world is watching NBC sports, they're not, they're not putting up Stephanie Gilmore. They're putting up Carissa Moore, the gold medalist one time who's going for it again. And the entire world will once again uh, be, you know, have Carissa sort of in their living room. And um, the power, the marketing power of that is just so much greater than just, you know, the WSL going, here's eight-time world champ, Steph Gilmore. But why can't she have both? Are you saying that she, I mean, the article kind of implies that she might take this year off, quote, to focus on the Olympics instead. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, I think I, that's a, I think that's yeah. a false um, presumption to make. I mean, the argument could be made that being on tour sharpens you for the gold medal more than being off to her. Uh, I'm not talking about what sharpens you or dulls you. I'm just saying that gold medals are more important than world titles. But she could do, the argument could be made that why wouldn't she just be able to do both next year? Well, they're making the argument that she's been denied twice at lowers and she's kind of throwing her hands in the air and going, this is lame. Exactly. But that doesn't have to do with a gold medal. Right. But I'm sure she'll be fine competitively. If she, yeah, if she wins the gold medal, then I, yeah, well. Yeah, the gold medal is more powerful. She's got five titles and two gold medals. I think that's way more goatness yeah. than eight world titles. So taking the year off doesn't really sully her legacy. Or she'll probably never, she'll legacy. probably never. If she, in fact, she goes through with this, I don't see her ever surfing on the WSL world tour ever again. So now I fully, yeah, I fully agree with you. I don't, I'm not even, my concern here isn't at all for Carissa's legacy. You know what I mean? Like this more is a punch in the eye to the WSL than it is to Carissa Moore. Her legacy is confirmed already yeah. and solidified. Um, Absolutely. The real problem here is for the WSL, not only for their um, validity as kind of the regulating body of, of the surf world or like the arbiters of the surf competitive world, but for their business as a whole, like this is very problematic for their business as a whole. And uh, the real question is, is it, I don't think one person can jeopardize their business necessarily. Like if Carissa jumps ship, she could just be an anomaly and they can kind of figure out how to recover from that and move well, forward. There's, and there's a bunch of, if, super, there's so many great female storylines too. If she is the first of a house of cards, right? That that is the real problem. And the rumor I mean, they're writing an article now about this rumor, but you and I have been discussing this for the last year or two, yes. that the WSL doesn't really offer a lot of incentive for certain athletes, the top athletes, to continue to be involved. And as their uh, format undercuts, in fact, the most gifted surfers in the world, it gives them even less opportunity. So when you have people like Kelly Slater's brand is bigger than the WSL, John John Florence earns a living in a lot of other ways that have nothing to do with the WSL. Certainly, I think the world titles validate him in a way and has allowed him to build the profile that he has built, but he already has those world titles. And so now he has diversified business interests enough to where he certainly doesn't need the paycheck that he's earning from the WSL and his contest earnings. So if he does, if his talents are undercut by the structure of the tour and certainly the venues that they run the tour at, then at what point do you recognize that you're spending your best 
years as an athlete surfing subpar waves, not showcasing your talent to its fullest potential. Yeah, no, I look, as you mentioned, we've been discussing this for a while and I agree with you. And, um, you know, if the next card is John, John that falls in this house of cards, you know, we have yeah. some major problems. So now, the bigger question is where's the CEO? Who the hell's making decisions over there? That's a great question. Yeah. Who is the CEO? Who's the CEO moving forward into 2024? We have heard nothing about that. No. Let me ask you this. Yeah. What about a new triple crown that has the very first sunset event that happens in late October there that's sponsored by the Hawaii Tourism Board? The Haleiwa event, which I think is also sponsored by the Hawaii Tourism Board, both WSL events, but they're like QS1000s or something. And the backdoor shootout is the third. And now you have a triple crown. Of course, Vans won't do it because they, they actually own the name Triple Crown of Surfing Vans. So you could call it, you know, the king and queen of the North Shore or whatever. You could rebrand it, but you would have this trilogy yeah. event. Everyone would know it's the Triple Crown. And um, I think that that would be a pretty cool thing. I, and the reason I, that I come to that place is because it seems like the WSL events, which used to have a little bit more juice or a little bit like they were just seemed like they were. I don't know, they had more power. They're sort of dropping off and they're just level with the backdoor shootout and the Vans Pipe Masters. They're not like, I don't know the word yeah. I'm looking for, but they're not well, it used better. To, I think for a period of time, the WSL or the ASP at the time had the best surfers in the world. You know, and so those surfers competing against each other at Pipeline made that the best event in the world. But you know, an argument could be made that some of the specialists at Pipeline uh, are better than 25, per, 25 of the males on the CT in that event. So really, when you're watching the CT event, there's 10 guys who are very great surfers at Pipeline, and that's who you want to see. But if you watch the backdoor shootout, there's 30 guys who are great at Pipeline, and that's who you want to see there. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like you're right. You know, we and plus... Okay, so let's say we don't have the greatest surfers in the world in the first couple of years of this new iteration of the Triple Crown. Eventually, there'll be money behind this thing, whoever picks it up and runs with it. And guess what? Ethan Ewing and Gabe Medina and the people that care about their legacy, the people that know that being recognized <clears throat> as a surfer that can handle Hawaiian waves is important. Yeah. And um, they will start to just come over. And then, of course... The WSL will be like, hey, man, you're not allowed to do that. You're one of our athletes. And right. that that ship has sailed. Anyone can do anything these days. Well, let's talk a little bit about Carissa. Um, I want to state that if she's taking this year off be, for the reasons that we, you know, because mm -hmm. she feels like her efforts are being undercut by the format, if she doesn't state that explicitly, I feel like that her taking the year off is a little bit in vain. And the message doesn't get across the WSL. Well, I don't know. I would, that. I would like I think to the see message it. is loud and clear, but she's doing a, no, because... she's doing a good brand. She's kind of covering her brand. Like you don't want to be the one that's like, I'm taking off because you guys are lame. She's just like, eh, I'm taking off and I don't need to tell you why, but everyone knows why. Well, not everybody knows why, you know what yeah, I mean? Because yeah, but not, I mean, no, because we do. she could say, no, she could say people could say the WSL could argue 
oh no, she is focusing on the Olympics, or maybe she's going to, maybe uh, she wants to have a kid. Maybe she wants yeah. to, you know what I mean? Like they could point at a bunch of different things and she's an anomaly. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect our business in any way. We can write that off. If she put out a clearly stated letter, like by the way, Gabriel Medina did last year after the W after the surf ranch event, calling into question the judging, you know, um, mm -hmm. put out a very clear statement saying, I love competitive surfing. I've dedicated my life to it. I feel like the format has shifted in a way that undermines my best efforts and, and the focus of my life. And therefore I don't feel comfortable spending an entire year on tour time away from my family time away from surfing great waves uh because it will be undercut again that would make a very very clear statement you're right but you're right i, I would i would like to see that and um maybe she's not saying that because well first of all we're this whole conversation is based on an assumption but um it seems like there's some pretty well-placed sources that stab's using um so let's just assume that she's definitely not doing it doing the tour well, yeah go ahead do you want to know when people finally decide to leave a job? Please fill me in. When they have a better paying gig right. lined up. And so right. John John Florence has already stated Kelly Slater would be right after that, as far as I'm concerned. I think that there's certain surfers who need the WSL. Kelly Slater, um, no. He doesn't he have a fiscal interest in the WSL succeeding? He has a physical interest in them succeeding, but he doesn't need the paycheck from the WSL to. Right. But he's not going to. But my point is, Calum Robson needs to be on tour to earn a living. Kelly Slater does not. That's right. my point. And there's other surfers beyond Calum, like Griffin Colapinto. You know what I mean? Like he, that's his thing. Like, I guess he could pivot and do a YouTube thing if he wanted to, but Ethan Ewing, Caroline Marks, Tyler Wright, they're all invested in the WSL and they need it to survive. But John John Florence, there's certain people, Gabriel Medina, he doesn't yeah, they need transcend it anymore. The WSL, they yeah. Totally transcend it. So ultimately, I think the question that those surfers need to ask themselves is: I'm in my prime. And will I will be doing the best surfing throughout my entire life in these next three years? right? Like I am late twenties, early thirties, got it all. Like this next three years, I'm going to do the best surfing in my life. So how will I best be able to showcase that is the question. And if the answer is that traveling to these predestined locations at a predestined time, competing in a Jersey that, and actually vying for a world title, by the way, like if you're that level where you're competing for number one and you have sponsors to back you and they're going to compensate you to go do that on tour, then go get it. Go get it and try to win the world title. But for everybody else that isn't in that position, they can go get barreled around the world somewhere and put it on YouTube and probably regain their visibility rather than, you know, fledgling in the bottom 20 on tour. What and, is the market like money. for that though? Isn't it? Isn't that market flooded? Like how many... Mason Ho, John John Florence, Jamie O'Brien, YouTube people can the market with withhold like, you know how many Nick Von Rupps, how many guys are good at it? You know, Cole, uh, uh, not Cole Rothman, but the other uh, goofy foot Smith. Um, yeah, Cole Smith, Rothman. I mean, there's too, some guys that. that do it good. Do you, I mean, 
I, I think your answer is going to be, hey, man, if they put out good content, I'm going to watch it. And I agree with you. But does it sustain them fiscally? Is that enough of a revenue model there for them? You know, because I just don't know how many I would I don't know how it works. I there is an equation to figure out how it works. And I would argue that the market to put on a contest jersey and try to go be in the top five is flooded as well. And there's only five, there's specifically five spots for that. You named more than yeah. five who are making a great living, traveling and surfing good mm -hmm. waves. And I mean, the question is also, what do you want to do? Like it used to be that you had to put the jersey on, even if you wanted to go surf good waves instead. Mm -hmm. No, you have to put the jersey on to make the living. I'm saying, if you're not going to be in that top five, what's the point? And didn't you really want to just go surfing in the first place? There's a, there's a way to do that now. Yeah, there really is. And it's also a great way to uh, excavate local cultures and put local cultures in the front seat and, it, you know, in the, in the living rooms and in the offices of people around the world that are watching this stuff. You know, we've always, the WSL, I remember the ASP, even when rabbit took over his whole thing is we're going to be showing the world, all of these great locations. And people love that about surfing, you know, traveling and surfing and all this. And we'll be doing that through these events and really the guys that are have the you know the, the greatest format to do that are these guys that are doing youtube clips where they're like surfing mulligmore and then they're at the pub talking about their wipeouts with the guy and they're you know there's just the b-roll that you see in the background it's just it's way easier to do that and if you look at the number of views on that video they have more than the wsl generates throughout an entire event yeah so you're accessing more people and so I would just, I would encourage anybody, I, or I think it would be wise for the WSL to recognize in a very realistic way uh, that they are losing leverage in terms of what they offer to these athletes. And they're not doing themselves any favor by, with their format decisions and um, the lack of kind of planning that went into that, you know, and we've seen, I think we've seen at this point, the shortcoming of their, the, or the, I don't know, the failures of that whole concept. And it's wild to me that they have not responded to the cacophony of consensus from their own viewership who thinks it's a terrible idea. Let me ask you a simple question. Is crowning a world champion important? Yes. I would agree. I think this is very, very important. In fact, um, much more important than I think people realize on a bunch of different levels. Um, my next question is, do you think that when I look at the WSL, I look at it like a graph. Paul Speaker comes in, WSL, they take over the ASP. It's at an all-time high, right? And then it's kind of like slowly like, you know, I don't know if it, it kind of fades a little bit, you know, and then Sophie Goldschmidt comes in and at some point down there, it's pretty low. And then Eric came in and it kind of got a bump and Eric brought some new energy and people were like, okay, yeah, you know, you know, WSL studios, blah, blah, blah. And now it's, I would suggest, I don't think it's at its lowest point, but it feels like they need a shot of steroids, you know, that like the whole thing needs, it's kind of like with the Los Angeles chargers, like they fired the head coach and they fired the general manager and the fan base is now like, cool, man, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. We've got, 
we've got new life. There's new opportunity for our team, you know? And I just feel like the fan base is waiting to have that moment where it's like, Oh, cool. They're doing a reset. They're doing a whole different thing. They're getting rid of the finals at lowers, you know, or whatever, you know, that's one of the big ones, I think. Yeah. Well, be curious to see what Carissa Moore does, but I, she has my full support if she chooses to, um, take a year off tour and it's directly related to the reasons that we're suspecting that it is because I think that if the WSL is not going to listen to us, their viewers, their fans and their list, their viewers, uh, hopefully they will then listen to their athletes. My gut feeling is that, um, you know, like most women her age and frankly, men that are married to women her age, we want to start families. You want to start a family. I've started a family. We all start families. And um, I think that that's probably, you know, I have no, I, you know, I'm just riffing with you here. I, I don't know anything about it, but, you know. It would make sense that that would be in concert with the the misgivings she has about the way that the f tour is structured. Yeah, yeah. totally yeah. great. waterwaystravel.com they hooked us up and all of our listeners to go to el salvador in april they can do it for you as well our trip's booked but they can get you there on any other week other than the week that we're going to be there uh and they can get you anywhere you need to go in the world scott yeah look waterways travel decades of experience and uh, you'd be remiss not to use the people that uh, know exactly what you need when you need it waterways travel yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, whatever level of luxury you're looking for, whether you want to just go bare bones by yourself or you want to bring your whole family, whatever level of surfing you do from novice to expert, they can guide you into the spot and also any time of year. You know what I mean? Like there's always waves breaking somewhere in the planet, uh, on the planet. Uh, and they can guide you. So if you have availability in January or June, or you want to bring your family or not, whether you shred or not, contact them. They'll guide you. You'll save time. You'll save money. You're almost guaranteed to score. So go waterwaystravel.com. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. 
and you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is linkedin.com surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, Stab in the Dark finale took place this past week. Um, what are your thoughts? Where do we begin? Do we just reveal the winner straight out? Do we have to give them a spoiler alert? No, I think we can. Why don't you tell them who won? Ian Byrne with the bang channeled uh, single fin. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that looked like a cool board, quite frankly. I, you know, um, well, actually, so, all four of the boards that were in the finals looked kind of fun. So the um, the ongoing kind of storyline here that we had been discussing is that it's a mismatch. Sean Manners uh, is not the right surfer to do this, and it was really a disservice to the board builders and the surfboards themselves. Um, it seems like in the past versions of this. The shaper was the line was in the limelight of all of it. And it really feels like they lost focus of that a bit. And not providing any context for Sean Manners to understand anything about the boards and why they were built or how they were built didn't really allow Sean to tap into some of you know the the best parts of the designs. And then not giving us the viewers an understanding for the brief that they gave the shapers also made it all very confusing for us and hard to track. All of that being said, this was episode three, the finale, and I thought this was the strongest episode yet. It feels like um, they spent the first half of the episode in New Zealand, and then the second half, they go back to Australia, and he surfs Lennox Head and um, some northern New South Wales spots. And the waves are actually better at home than they were throughout the rest of the series. And so I feel like whether it was just that he had spent a number of times on these boards and it took that long to figure them out, or maybe it was just surfing in better waves uh, allowed those boards to kind of find their groove. I felt like he did get groovy with them and it, it just, the surfing was better and it makes the episode more enjoyable. Yeah, I would agree that this was the best of the three. Um, I enjoyed it. It did seem like sometimes he was crowbarring comments in that they had told him to say like, and in some ways you mentioned that it's been a disservice to the shapers and it has been, but in, it's also been a disservice to Sean manners. Totally. Like, I, I just feel like, first of all, they tell you, Oh, actually it was supposed to be Mickey, Wright, And we had all the boards made. And so we just, you're our backup. Right. And you get the feeling he's kind of like, and I kind of don't blame him. He's kind of like, oh, okay, I was plan B. And so yeah. there's like this plan B energy behind the whole thing. Like, oh, I don't know these boards. I don't even ride boards like this. And uh, right. I don't know. He uses, he says some stuff that's just like, oh, I think at one point he says something like these boards are novice boards or something. It, like, did you, you know, ever say that? Novel, novelty. He said, novelty, if this, board's, yeah. this board should never be considered anything other than a novelty. Yeah, and I think he used the word novice at one point too, but Did yeah. He? Well, here's here's where another disservice, speaking about dead kooks, right? Um, the board that he made, that Eden Saul made for uh, Sean is a popular board model that he makes and that other pro surfers ride regularly. So Sean's comment about that board specifically was, quote, 
I don't reckon it's a good board, end quote. He's saying this is not a good board. He, he said it slides, you know, I go to do a turn and it kind of slides out or it doesn't go on rail. That Watch Dave Rostovich ride that board. Go to Dead Kook's website and click play on the Dave Rostovich video right on the homepage. Absolutely goes on rail. Absolutely doesn't slide out. Like it, it's such a disservice to write off the board and just say, I don't reckon it's a good board. And I've held that board when I saw Eden, not the exact one, but I held that model and checked it out. And I was like, this thing's neutral. Like this is as neutral as you could make a board. Like it would go in anything. It would be fast. You could put it on rail. Like, I don't think you could get it to slide out. So Sean's approach was what didn't translate on that board. But that board is not, quote, not a good board. Well, we've said it before, Dave Rostovich would be an excellent surfer for this series. Uh, did you hold the board here somewhere in Southern California? Yeah, he was in town a couple of weeks ago. Was it, was it a 6'5"? Like the same I don't size? Know. I don't know. Why? <laughs> I want to know where it is. I want that board. They He was bringing them. Uh, they all had homes already. They were all purchased. Uh, okay. Um, interestingly, so Kobe Hughes was featured in this episode. He was in a previous episode as well. He's Ryan Birch's nephew. Mm -hmm. He's only made 35 boards, he said. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of an interesting, I'm not against this at all, but it's kind of interesting to have somebody who is an absolute novice at board building included in this experiment. Yeah, I, I was stoked on that too. I, I love that anytime we can give new blood some energy and some limelight and some focus, it's a good thing. And um course kobe's an incredible surfer and you know good for him that board looked fun to me i i you know and yeah it, you know it just got kind of old when sean was just kind of like he just even when he was like feigning excitement it just seemed like it was forced like he's like i better say something good about one of these boards so here we go it took yeah, this board it, was fast it took a very long time for him to say something good about any of the boards and i do agree with you it felt like it was what he finally found good. Like he didn't, he didn't like that board better. He's never going to ride that board again. He didn't like that board better than his normal thrusters. He's not going to, you know, now deviate from the path that he was already on. So, um, but, but I do, will say, like I said, the, the way that he got groovy on the Kobe Hughes and the Ian Byrne, where he was just kind of like trying, he was then finding different lines and leaning back, doing lay laybacks and stuff like that. It did. Uh, it was different than he normally surfs, and he finally kind of tapped into a little bit of what those boards were about. Um, just for the record, fourth place went to Kobe Hughes, third place went to Neil Purchase Jr., second place went to Josh Keo, and first went to Ian Byrne. Yeah, as I mentioned, all four of those boards were super cool looking, I, and I would, I would love to, uh, to ride one of those boards in El Salvador <laughs> or the. For the every man in the dark, Perfect. the man on the street surfboard review brought to you by Spit and the boardroom and waterways, uh, um, and waterways of course the hugest of huge. You know who the star was of Stab in the Dark this time? Um, New Zealand. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, also it looked cold. It was clearly cold, and so that. Um, but I mean, it's unbelievably beautiful so we need to get just give those four boards to dave rostovich like said it'll be insane it'll be a really good episode yeah well they you know said 
the final line of their article was that uh, they do have a surfer already selected for the next stab in the dark. And it's somebody who does ride unconventional boards all the time. Oh, so yeah. Rasta could be, um, I don't know if Rasta would be interested in doing it. I was thinking also, uh, Josh Kerr might be yeah, contender for it. Yeah, for sure. Both of those are great options. Michael February could be a contender for it. Yes. Super good. Um, uh, Torrin, Torrin Martin. Torrin would be amazing. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's so many guys. I mean, even Birch, Birch would be incredible. Birch would be insane because, I mean, I don't think of him as being very verbose, but he certainly understands design. And so I would think would be able to uh, describe it and discuss it in a way better than not. Well, you know, most of the enjoyment I get out of those is watching those guys ride the boards. Like, I don't really need to hear them say, oh, I love the sport. It was fast. You know, I kind of I'd I just like watching them surf. And me kind of getting my own feedback from watching him surf. And I, when I saw Sean, I just felt like he didn't want to be there. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was. And he wasn't surfing well. Like not having enjoyable or entertaining surfing to watch is just uh, a non-starter. Yeah. I mentioned this listener line call. Can I play this for you? Yes. What do you have here? Well, we've been, we've been talking a couple of weeks ago about um, the comparisons between surfing in wave pools versus surfing in the ocean. And I've, and also just like how surfing is so unique, but climbing has come up as an analogy of like something that people talk about as being the closest to surfing where you're in nature and it's just you versus nature essentially. So listener chimed in with this. Hey, David. Um, I have a, something I want to elaborate on in reference to the analogies you guys draw between climbing and surfing. And, um, what I wanted to say is in terms of the competition element and governing boards, um, climbing has an international competition circuit. The thing to emphasize about this inside of climbing is the way it's artificial artificiality has changed style in climbing. Much like wave pool surfing, these comp competitions favor gymnastic like movement in service of sort of like viewers' excitement. The style of climbing and competition in this artificial setting has almost nothing to do with what happens when climbing outside in nature. I'm generalizing a bit, but I'd say this mostly holds true, particularly for bouldering. It's not far-fetched to see competitive surfing taking the same trajectory, the stylistic differences of someone like Felipe leading to a complete divergence in competitive surfing. But as in surfing, the most respected feats in climbing still happen in a natural setting, specifically first ascents that push the limits of man's ability. Even in the context of climbing, there's a huge emphasis on style in this man versus wild setting, unlike the competitive gymnastics of um, competition climbing. In a lot of ways, the trajectory of climbing is uh, maybe a glimpse into surfing's future. All that said, climbing is missing that finite resource element that makes us surfers all assholes. So maybe it'll play out differently. Okay. Um, bye. Yeah. Well, gosh, that was well stated. I don't. I don't know what else to put on top of that. He he absolutely nailed it. Um, we both have this man versus nature thing that's crucial. 
that we all love and that gets lost when you try to implement some sort of subjective uh, judging criteria on a in a man-made setting i think the question that came up in our podcast a couple of weeks ago that spurred that call was um we were questioning whether or not there was any world tour equivalent for climbing and a, so apparently there is and i think it actually might be included in the olympics as well somebody texted us and said um so it will be interesting to see how wave pool culture then influences the greater culture you know what i mean like i think that um obviously the palm springs wave uh surf club is on front of mind for us because they're opening this next month uh and we have a lot where that's two hours basically from us two hours from la two hours from orange county two hours from san diego so there's going to be a ton of people going to surf that pool but they're also like we saw in waco there are locals who are surfing and discovering surfing for the first time in these pools and so if the model becomes financially successful and they are building these pools everywhere there could be you know wave pool uh, circuits and there could be world champions that develop out of that circuit that exist only in that ecosystem and then following kind of what he's talking about with the climbing analogy is it does some of that gymnastic style of climbing translate it all not only to the ocean but then start to uh, influence the way that surfing is done in the ocean well i mean it's funny because when you think about aerial surfing some of the i mean aerial surfing started in the ocean i mean you look at the guys on maui matt miola those guys albi you know, even look at Jordy Smith was an incredible aerialist when he was younger and probably still is. I feel like the, the aerial movement has already occurred. It's not like we're lacking that and we're looking to the wave pools to like create this new thing. Wave pools just, you know, allow for us to do it a lot more because it's just ramp after ramp after ramp. Repetition and practice in order to do the thing. But, you know, I wonder too, this isn't really discussed probably in terms of influence, but it might be influencing you negatively. Like what you need in the ocean is the ability to respond in a split second and make fast twitch decisions. And if you never have to depend on that in the pool because it's that consistent, you don't develop that muscle at all. And so you might be able to do a backflip off of a section but in the ocean, you will never find that section. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it got me thinking about the guy's call because I think that, and I don't know, I'm not a climber. I think that indoor climbing translates better to nature climbing, to you know, real climbing, I guess you would say, or I don't know how you would phrase it, more so than surfing in a wave pool would translate to going to the ocean. I think that's a really big widespread, whereas in climbing, I think, yeah, you're an insane climber indoors you're probably a pretty damn good climber because it's the static situation yeah i guess um they both things can coexist in harmony and they will ultimately i think that's the direction that we're going well i got this sense i was th you were talking when you were talking about palm springs and everybody going there and i was thinking to myself yeah i'm definitely going there and i'm going there to go surfing to play golf, 
to have an insane dinner at a steakhouse and just enjoy Palm Springs. And then that led me to my mind goes to weird places. And I was like, of those things, which is which am I going to be bored with first? Mm. And I just wonder if like surfing a three to four foot wedgy peak that's super fun on its face, because it doesn't change a whole lot, does it get boring? Like at some point you're like, ah, I already did that. You know what I mean? Whereas like golf, it's constantly challenging, you know, and the steak we need to eat. <laughs> you know, and Palm it, Springs is beautiful and warm. But you would, you know. would, you would get bored of it if you had unlimited access to it. But the reality is at 200 bucks an hour or 150 an hour for the intermediate setting, you're only going to book two hours a day probably. And yeah. only a couple days a year at most. So you won't get tired of it in that amount of time. Good point. Good point. And I'm excited about, I, I guess they're booked out and they're, they're so booked out that they're like holding off February. They don't know what to do with February. They're like, shit, we got so much response. We need to pull everything in and kind of, you know, reshuffle our cars and see if our cost or price point isn't right or what, but, uh, good for them, man. And I'll tell you what it does is all the other wave wave pool companies out there. I know there's at least one that's kind of gearing up. There might be two. I think there's Coral Springs and then this other one. And I get kind of confused by it all, but anyway, they've got to be psyched watching uh, Palm Springs surf club get booked out immediately. Yeah. You know, who's uh this is a little insider trading info here, but you know who's having their uh, 40th birthday there today? At Palm Springs Surf Club? Yeah. Um, who's 40 that I know? I don't know. Who? One Jonah Hill. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Good for him. I have friends that are going out there to uh, partake and participate in that. That's um, cool. Yeah. So the interesting thing here is the pricing. I don't know if we discussed this last week, but I feel like they nailed the pricing. So the business model of wave pools is the one thing that we haven't seen have uh, guaranteed success yet. Some of these pools are open, but we're like, you know, are they financially solvent? And Kelly Slater's at $50,000 a day is very, it's very much for the elites. They've only sold one other, they've only built one other pool in on um, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Where is it? Is it Saudi Arabia or is it Abu or, Dhabi? Or it's Abu Dhabi? Yeah. I forget yeah. what yeah, I don't, which country it is. All, but I, I don't even know the difference. To be honest. Well, they're different countries. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Holy shit. So it's uh, again for the elites, you know, yeah. but like, so that business model, and it's still not proven. Like, I don't know if even the Lamore Club turns a profit. Uh, but at this level, I feel like they nailed the pricing where. There's enough frequency of waves to for everybody to get their fill. And they put nine to 12 people in the pool at a time paying the $150 each. It's a number. So I don't know if that uh, math, obviously that math has to check out for them. They will turn a profit at a certain you know, number of years. But I feel like pricing it that way allows guys like you and I to be able to do it with a certain level of frequency throughout the year. And there's enough of us around within a two hour drive that they'll be able to keep that pool full pretty much 365 days a year. I think so. Especially as word gets out about it, people come back from their trips Yeah, and they go, Oh my God, it was insane. You got to do it. You know, and that's kind of what happened with Kelly's thing. Like everyone's like, Oh yeah. Gotta do that. 
but the tech, the Texas thing, it was like, they're too, you have to hop on a plane. If you're a surfer, if you're a pre-existing surfer, you have to get on a plane to go there. That creates a barrier of entry. Then being able to tap into the, all of the populations of everywhere, like I said, from LA to San Diego, plus everybody who does fly into these areas already, like these are already heavily touristed destinations as is Palm Springs. So them being able to have that kind of unlimited um, uh, resource that they have access to. And if it was priced at $500 an hour, it would be just too much to really be widely accessible to most middle class Americans. 200 bucks, 150 bucks. It's just that sweet spot where it's like, most people, middle-class Americans can figure out a way how to afford it. They won't be able to do it every paycheck, but they will be able to allocate some funds to it. If they're, like you said, if they're already going to Palm Springs to golf, they're spending a couple hundred bucks on golfing. They're also like that steak dinner you're talking about. That's a hundred bucks a person. So if they can afford to do those things, then they can also afford to do the $150 surf day. Yeah, I think you're right. The price point seems right on for sure. And, um, it, it, what interests me is what's going to happen to Waco. Like, will it just dry up? You're right. You know, like how many people are coming from Southern California, going to Texas, going to Waco that now don't need to, I, I bet. I mean, would you, would you say it's 80%? Is that a stretch? Is that too many? Even if it's, let's say it's 60% Californians that are now like, don't need to. Yeah. That's a big drop off, man. You got to f- figure out how to fill that market. Or the other analogy is, or the other possibility is that the more of these pools you build, the rising tide, you know, raises all the ships and the more interest there is in wave pools as a whole. Maybe. And Maybe. there's the, the other thing is I shouldn't, I said that um, the Palm Springs is already a tourist destination. So is Austin. Austin's already attracting a ton of travelers. And so to do the two hour drive over to Waco from Austin is, you know, a reasonable thing for a lot of people. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. It is. So, well, but exciting to see that. I mean, the footage that I sent you DM'd you and I was like, this particular clip of Palm Springs surf club shows is the best version of showcasing the versatility of the pool. Um, I thought that was a really great clip to for you to really see like the size of the pool, the way it's refracting, the wedges that they can do, the versatility of the styles of waves that they can create, point breaks, wedges, all sorts of Which stuff. Which technology did they did they license? Or they do you know? Wave locks. Oh, Tom, cool. Tom Lockfield. Tom Lockfield. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that because I want I want that space to get filled with a bunch of different license, a bunch of different companies. I don't want it to just be one company that owns it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's better for all of us if we, if we see with the different, you know, options. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Cool. Causes everybody to up their game. Each of those techs. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, well, look, um, I do have a heart out here. Um, I apologize. Do you have a, a mussy moment or a Duke and a kook? I don't have a Duke and a Kook, but I do have a moment that I saw on YouTube that you guys should all watch. Um, just They just released it yesterday. Tanner Godowskis, who I mentioned last week also, just dropped a new surf video. Uh, it's called Sunburn, and it features... Bobby Martinez. Like Bobby Martinez, Chris Ward, uh, Aton Osborne, Dylan Graves, Yaden Nickel, Andrew Jacobson. 
But, you know, I get to see Aton Osborne and Dylan Graves surf fairly regularly. I don't get to see enough Bobby. I don't get to see enough Chris Ward. And this showcases them and they're freaking ripping still to this day. That's cool. So it's a 17 minute video, Sunburn on Tanner Godowskis's, uh YouTube page. Very cool. Well, we'll have to check that out and get psyched, get stoked. Yeah, Speaking of stoked, good stuff. dude, surfed out. I surfed five days in a row. Epic. I'm like sore. You know what I mean? Is it raining down there right now? No, it's sunny. Mm. It's raining here work. today. Yeah, the waves um, have been good here as well, but now we've got like three or four days of rain and wind. So get a little break. Well, speaking brief. of like hit and split recommendations that we sometimes do on the show next week, like basically kind of Christmas, but especially I think the couple days, three, four days after Christmas, that whole run, California is going to be in for a solid punch of Northwest swell. I'm sure we'll see some, some imagery from Mavericks coming in and, uh, it's going to be pretty solid here. Um, so buckle up, get ready nice holiday gift for California yeah. surfers and for all you California surfers, don't forget to use your trees wax. I mean, you don't have to be in California to get it, but if you are in California, you can get it up sports and Oceanside, the California surf outlet in Santa Cruz or OCN culture in San Anselmo, or of course, treeswax.com. No matter where you are in the world, it is the only petroleum free surf wax that I know of. So, and a great stocking stuffer. Get some wax for the surfer in your life and uh, care for the planet and care for the one you love at the same time. Trees wax. I love it. All right. Well, look, David, it's been uh, quite a show. We've said a lot. Until next week, adios and aloha.
And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.